0: Hello,
1: and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Lavender.
2: And I'm Mark Dunlake. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a story on the status of public campaign financing in New York. Then for our peace bucket, we hear from Roger Waters and World Without War um, from the February 19th D.C. rally. Later on, Willie Terry reports on what took place at the sanctuary's recent Black History Month celebration. And then we hear about the drama Mamas, a new musical comedy about the Exodus on March 12th, uh, playing at the Albany Jewish Community Center. Finally, we hear about the challenges of an RPI student uh, in finding medical assistance to deal with Lyme disease. But first, headlines.
1: New York State is about to disrupt how Medicaid patients receive the prescription drugs they need, which will compromise safety net providers' ability to provide critical care to underserved New Yorkers. The state will move Medicaid pharmacy benefits from managed care to a fee-for-service model, which will save the state money, but will take money away from health care providers caring for low-income patients.
2: Governor Hochul on Tuesday ramped up her rhetoric in support of rolling back recent bail reforms, calling on legislative leaders to remove what she called an absurd standard requiring criminal defendants to get the least restrictive conditions ahead of their trials.
1: The state attorney general plans a full investigation of the crash between a city of Troy police SUV and a pizza delivery vehicle whose driver was killed in the early morning hours of February 22nd at the intersection of Husick and 15th Street. Troy police continued to refuse to release some key details about the crash involving Officer Justin Burns and Sabe Alalkawi.
2: The Time Union reports a dozen Black Lives Matter activists appeared at Tuesday night's Saratoga City Council meeting to call out the Public Safety Commissioner for charging Chandler Hickenbottom with disorderly conduct for talking too long at a February meeting. The protesters wore t-shirts that read, Jim Montagnino, your racism is showing, hashtag the People's Meeting. The activists um, spoke out harshly against Montagnino during the public comment period, calling him a fascist, dangerous, and a misogynist. The Gazette reports that early in the day, a judge denied Montagnino's request for an order of protection against Hickenbottom.
1: The Gazette reports that the city of Schenectady is considering contracting with Creative Outdoor to supply the city with 40 cost-free garbage and recycling bins that would include ads for local businesses. The city would receive about $10,000 in revenues from the program if adopted.
2: The city of Albany's police union is suing Albany over the creation of a public safety commissioner to rule on police disciplinary matters that cannot be settled within the department. The union argues that it violates its contract with the city. That's it for the headlines.
1: For our first segment, we hear from Karen Wharton, Democracy Coalition Coordinator of Citizens Action, about the possibility that the rollout of the state's new partial public campaign finance program may be delayed.
2: We're joined by Karen Wharton, who is the uh, Democracy Coalition Coordinator for Citizen Action of New York. And, and Citizen Action, for, for many, many years, uh, worked to reform our uh, campaign system to elect officials. They and others, a couple of years ago, were able to get the uh, governor and state legislature to agree to do a system of partial public campaign finance, and somewhat similar to what New York City is already doing. But, but now, apparently, as this is supposed to have been rolled out this year, suddenly it sounds like some of the members of the legislature, particularly in the assembly, may be getting cold feet and want to delay it. So, so Karen, why don't we start off by explaining what exactly is the Democracy Coalition Coordinator and, and why is public campaign financing important? Hey, thank you. Firstly, thank you so
0: much, Mark, for having me here. Uh, I'm delighted uh, to be able to spend some time with you talk about some of the issues that are most meaningful to me. Democracy, particularly democracy in New York. Uh, It's democracy, as you know, and maybe uh, folks would agree or not disagree, is on their attack. Uh, Not just locally in in our state, but nationally and and internationally as well. So in my capacity as the Democracy Coalition Coordinator at Citizen Action, uh, I basically advocate for protecting democracy and expanding democracy, uh, particularly in New York state, because we are a statewide organization. Uh, So um, the public campaign finance uh, program that we're advocating for and have advocated for, uh, basically it determines who and how uh, uh, folks uh, get onto the ballot. So it's at the very beginning of the uh, electoral process. Um, And so it's an important part, a very important part of uh, our our democratic process here. Like how, when you show up to vote on election day, what is the process? How is it that those those names that you see on the ballot, how is it that they appear there? And so I advocate for fair elections uh, in New York and, and, and beyond.
2: Now, I understand that the public campaign finance system has a sort of sliding scale match depending upon the size of the donation. Uh, Smaller donations get matched 12 to 1. Uh, I guess it gets matched up to $250. Um, And at least for legislative races, uh, they have to be matched if the donation is from their particular uh, district, uh, legislative district. Uh, and I assume it also applies to some of the statewide uh, races. Um, what What's the holdup? Why, why are some of the people in the legislature saying, let's pause implementation of this? Some, I read the Times Union editorial recently, indicate that since the Assembly will have to do new election district because of a court case, the Senate court, court districts were redone already for Senate, but not for Assembly. Do some of the Assembly members for some reason want to hold off doing public campaign financing until uh, they've been re-elected to the new legislative districts. is that true? So uh, we
0: don't know exactly uh, what is causing what is causing them to reconsider uh, and how and who the them are we still aren't sure of how many of them exist uh, we don't know uh, uh, but we do know that this is a phenomenal uh, program and that has to continue uh, because uh, it amplifies the voices of ordinary people or or everyday New Yorkers such as myself. Um, What the the program is, it does have a sliding scale, as you mentioned, Mark, uh, for state legislative races. So state senate and state assembly uh, um, candidates uh, for donations between $5 $5 and $2.50. So for, for those state legislative races, uh, donations, the first $50 would be matched 12 to one. So if you give your candidate, uh, your favorite candidate, five, state assembly candidate, for instance, $5, it's valued uh, $6 to $5 to your candidate. So the sliding scale, first $50 is matched 12 to one. The next $100, uh, nine to one, and the last $100, 8 to one, uh, and so the uh, the maximum you uh, you can, a candidate can receive on an uh, the matching funds, the matching the maximum matching funds uh, for 250 would work up to be about $2,500 uh, for statewide races, lieutenant governor, governor. Uh, State Comptroller, State Attorney General, uh, it's flat, six to one. Uh, So for every dollar you give uh, to any of those candidates or or candidate running for those races, it'll be matched six to one. And this is quite innovative. Uh, When you look at uh, the match for state legislative races, the 12 to one, it is phenomenal that we're actually, we're really, Amplifying uh, uh, the smaller dollars, right? So, this is an effort to give New Yorkers an equal say in their democracy. Uh, if you, we did some studies uh, about election last year, statewide elections or state New York state elections, and mark 200 uh, wealthy New Yorkers gave approximately $16 million to races in New York. Compare that to the amount that 200,000 New Yorkers uh, who, were, who were only able to give up to 250, right, gave less than $16 million. So what we have is 200 New Yorkers having an outsized, outsized state in our democracy. This program uh, addresses that.
2: Now, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, um, but let's talk about this effort, apparently by the Assembly, I'll say that, trying to delay that. Now, since this is already a law, it, it seems that in order to actually pause the law, normally you would need to say you, get, you need to get both the Senate and the Assembly to pass a bill to pause it and then the governor to sign it but i understand they also need to allocate or appropriate money for this program i've heard a figure of 100 million dollars so if they don't pause this uh, legislation because the senate doesn't go along with it but they don't appropriate the 100 million dollars in the state budget because the assembly blocked it what happens
0: so thank you this is a very uh, excellent question actually it is already the law the program is in flight Uh, We have about 20 candidates already have begun the process of signing up for this. So it's a law. There's an agency within the State Board of Elections. It's uh, called the Public Campaign Finance Board that has already begun uh, ruling out components of the program. So what we need is to have it budgeted. We, we need to have the matching funds be put in the till so that uh, those of you who run for office next year uh can be assured that the funds will be there uh when um when it, when it needs to be matched, when your your donations need to be matched. now this argument about uh, assembly lines uh, holding it up uh I don't I don't think that holds much watermark And here is why candidates uh, basically monies will not be dispersed until much later and the lines will be out shortly. And it's the assembly and the Senate who will determine when those along with uh, some governmental agencies as to when those lines will be finalized. So this is all within their control.
2: So um, it's sort of unclear what's going on. No one's being taken responsibility for this. If people want to follow this issue, get more information stay on top of it, maybe talk to their legislators about it, how best can they keep on top of this issue? Sure. Like a website.
0: Uh, a, a website. Uh, to learn more about the program, go to pcfb.ny.gov. Uh, to learn more about what is happening around advocacy, go to a fair election and ny.org. And, of course, if you want to, uh, feel free to contact your legislator. Uh, We've provided an 800 number for that. uh, 800-702-3122. 800-702-3122.
2: Thank you very much. Karen Wharton, Democracy Coalition Coordinator, Citizen Action of New York. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So the reason why assembly members will be nervous about uh, running with a public campaign fine system at the moment is if they withdraw new lines as courts are required in 2024, they'll be running in districts where they'll have a lot of new voters and that reduces the power of incumbency. So they don't wanna even the field by increasing campaign contributions. Uh, I will also note that when this law was enacted, uh, Governor Cuomo said we had to kill the third parties, the independent third parties, because otherwise there'd be so many people qualifying for public campaign financing. And of course, third parties are much more likely to see people running fake campaigns, unlike, say, a uh, George Santos for Congress uh, and the Republican line. And then one thing we did talk to Karen afterwards, which we'll hopefully talk in the future, is about whether or not New York will move to um, rank choice voting, which they have done in New York City.
1: For our peace segment, we hear from two speakers at the February 19th Rage Against the War Machine, David Swanson of World With War and Roger Waters of Pink Floyd.
2: On February 19th, on the anniversary of the start of the war and invasion in Ukraine, anti-war activists gathered at the Lincoln Memorial in DC to rage against the war machine. Key demands of the event were not one more penny for war in Ukraine, negotiate peace, stop the war inflation, and disband NATO. While the event was an effort to pull together both left and right wing groups who oppose war, the politics and policies of some of the key sponsors were quite controversial, leading to a relatively small turnout of at best a few thousand. Still, it was the largest anti-war protest in the United States in recent years. Recent peace demonstrations in Europe calling for a ceasefire while also calling to halt the sending of more weapons into the war to kill more people have been far larger. American peace groups are planning a larger DC rally on March 18th. For our peace bucket, we hear from two speakers from the February 19th event, Uh, David Swanson of World Without War, and Roger Waters, uh, best known as the founder of the progressive rock band Pink Floyd.
3: It is always nice to have new people oppose a new war, but sad to see people who opposed a past war support a new one because if we ever, ever want to mobilize the activism required to defund the most expensive and destructive institution ever created, the U.S. military, we will have to come to an understanding that the problem is not any particular war. The problem is not any side of any particular war. The problem, the only thing we should be calling an enemy is the very idea that there can be a right side in the toxic tango of organized mass murder that is every war. I'm not here to demand that the US stop arming Ukraine in order to aid me or those near me. The money buying the weapons to ship to Ukraine and to prepare for yet more wars is making Ukraine worse off, not better while risking nuclear apocalypse for us all, and could instead, if spent wisely, be a major benefit, not just to this country, but to the world. The U.S. government is blocking peace in Ukraine and telling you that it is only Ukraine demanding that the war go on, but you're not falling for that, are you? The massive rallies of 40 years ago against nuclear weapons disappeared, along with most of the weapons. But enough weapons remained to end life on Earth, and the risk of that is rising. And the only way out of it, the only way out of it, is the abolition of war and of nuclear weapons. I know, I know that supporters of war Believe against all evidence, but in line with everything this culture tells them, that war is a wise tool for defense, a belief on which limits are not easily imposed. Everyone is supposed to be welcome to believe whatever they want, but just as with climate denial, denial of the superior power of nonviolence is a belief that will end all other beliefs by ending all life. Our luck cannot hold out if the nuclear weapons do not get us, the environmental destruction exacerbated by war and the lack of global cooperation impeded by war will. Meanwhile, war fuels bigotry, justifies secrecy, proliferates violence and weaponry and corrodes our culture, conflating disagreement with murderous enmity, war thinking. Makes even looking at the facts of nonviolent activism seem like some sort of shameful betrayal. But our choice remains, as when Dr. King said it, between nonviolence and non existence. Any world we can hope for, for our children and grandchildren, is a world beyond war. A world perfectly possible, if we choose it, in which governments behave with the minimal decency we expect of preschoolers. A world in which we don't litter this new Roman forum with marble celebrations and phallic eyesores glorifying the greatest orgies of mass murder, but in which we model and praise generosity, humility, understanding, and self-sacrifice without violence. A world we will only get if we place ourselves in the way of business as usual in this town. I leave you with these goals. Russia, out of Ukraine. NATO, out of existence. The war machine, abolished. Peace on our planet.
2: with many difficult questions. Next, we hear from Roger
4: Waters. The invasion of Ukraine by the Russian Federation was illegal. I condemn it in the strongest possible terms. Also, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was not unprovoked. So I also condemn the provocateurs in the strongest possible terms. So, on behalf of the silent majority, I now address President Biden. Let us be very clear, Mr. President. I speak for the voiceless majority. You and Anthony Blinken and Victoria Newland and Jake Sullivan and the rest of the warmongering neocons, at the heart of government here in Washington, along with the vassal states in NATO, are the principal provocateurs that I mentioned. I'm not apologizing for Mr. Putin, you understand, but just a glance fleetingly back at the history of the last 30 years or so, you could have done better. You could have followed President Gorbachev's lead in 1989. You could have kept Secretary of State Baker's promise not to advance NATO one yard closer to the Russian border than the eastern extremities of a reunited Germany. You could have responded to President Putin's overtures in his famous 10th of February 2007 speech at the security conference in Munich and shepherded us all towards a much, much safer Europe. Or, in 2008, you could have chosen not to expand NATO eastwards. Or, in 2014, you could have refrained from engineering The illegal maiden coup d'etat in Ukraine. Or in 2019, you could have supported the Minsk Accords. Now we're told by Angela Merkel they were just a ruse to buy time to arm Ukraine for the war that you were engineering. But they were also the Minsk Accords, that is, the platform that President Zelensky ran on during his presidential campaign. Well, you fooled me, President Zelensky. I thought you meant all that stuff about ending the civil war in the Donbass and giving Russia, your neighbor, some security assurances. I thought you were coming to your senses. Together, we the people can persuade the powers that be to drop the model of perpetual war as their accepted modus operandum. With the power of love, we will stop them from squandering our precious resources on their wars. We will be able to feed our children and keep them sheltered from the storm. We may even learn...
2: And this has been Mark Dunley with another peace bucket for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I will note that for International Women's Day Albany well, Women Against War did hold a peace rally. We're not able to get one of them to come on to speak. I believe they were also calling for a ceasefire in the Ukraine, but but also looking at some of the wars going on. Uh, say, with uh, in Syria and with, with Yemen. If you're interested in a Peace Bucket, uh, we do that once a week, but you can go to mediasentra.org and search for um, peace issues. For those just tuning in, and even those who've been listening, I'm Mark Dunlake.
1: And I'm Lavender. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy 100 GLP 92.7 FM Troy, 100 SLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York.
2: If you like what you hear you can support this program by telling a friend neighbor relative somebody you meet on the bus somebody you meet at the supermarket find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org
1: In part 1 of Willie Terry's report on the Black History Month celebration at the Sanctuary for Independent Media we hear from Renee Powell president of the Troy NAACP Congress member Paul Tonko Shauna Davis, President of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, and Kristen KP Haller, Executive Director of the Media Sanctuary. Good evening. Hey. Hey. Good
5: evening. And welcome to the third Black History Month program being held here in Troy. Uh, this is the first year that NAACP, uh, Team Hero, and the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists have come together to host. Uh, this event and we also would like to thank the Sanctuary for being a great supporter and hosting us here and without them this would not have been possible so thank you so much for those of you who don't know me my name is Renee Powell I'm the president of the Troy branch of the NAACP thank you very much And uh, I'm not going to share a lot of information about the organization because I think uh, that will be covered in a presentation that we will have later. You guys are in for a treat today. I'm excited about the lineup. And um, I just want to let you know that this organization has been in existence since 1912 uh, because of a call to action by a group of 60 people in 1906 uh, that was behind a race ride that occurred in Springfield, Massachusetts. So these things were happening back then. We're still dealing with it today. And so NAACP still has a relevance in our community and our lives. So for those of you who are interested in uh, fighting the good fight, come see me. I'll be around, and I'll get you some information on how to become a member of the branch here in Troy. Now, we are honored to have with us Representative Paul Tonko, Congressman Paul Tonko, and I would like to bring
6: him up to the podium and give us
7: a few words. Thank you. Thank you. Well, hello everybody. It's good to join you. Um, it's been a very active Black History Month this February. So many groups and organizations sponsoring events and it's great to try to meet as many as we can on our schedule uh, between being in Washington and in the district. but. Uh, Thank you to the sponsors this evening, and thank you to the host for making this all available. You know, as I've indicated at several stops along the way uh, during Black History Month, um, it, it's important to note that black history is American history. And uh, we, we encompass it and we embrace it because it's, uh, it's important to recognize the legacies that have been established, the inspiration that has been delivered our way, the challenges that have been placed us, by those heroes in the black community, be they African-based, Caribbean-based, or whatever, uh, knowing that um, their legacy should inspire us, should motivate us to continue to work away at Unfinished Business, and there's plenty of Unfinished Business. Um, it's about making certain we address racism and prejudice that's a part of so many institutions and societal um, impact itself, and to make certain that uh, we, incorporate diversity in our country in a way that speaks to that racism, prejudice, and white supremacy, making certain that uh, change is made that empowers all and provides for equitable treatment. Um, In terms of role models in the black history movement, um, we oftentimes look at the national leaders or those who made prominence on an international scale, but it's comforting to know and encouraging to recognize so many voices and individuals that came from within our neighborhoods here in the 20th Congressional District. You think of folks uh, like Edmonia Lewis, who in the Civil War era was a recognized one of very top respected painters and sculptors. And we also look in the turn of perhaps just over 100 years ago at the life of Wendell King, who as an engineer that worked in GE, entering into that workforce in 1917, Uh, was very involved in innovation and invention and addressing radio technology. But he also had a passion and a skill for public radio broadcasting. And he incorporated that by working for equal uh, treatment of the workforce, establishing a more equitable workforce through the airwaves. And again, and then finally thinking of certainly the sergeant William Henry Johnson, who uh, when enlisting in World War I, uh, when total separation of the forces total segregation was the uh, the name of the game um he came forth and uh, volunteered her his service to this country and single-handedly fought off a german raid in hand-to-hand combat and saved several lives of his own his own colleagues in the war and i think there are great legacies from our neighborhoods there are great legacies on a more grand scale but let them inspire us and remind us that there is unfinished business process. So great legacy, great to be with you, great to uh, have the opportunity to share some thoughts with you and am honored and proud to be your voice in Washington. Let's celebrate black history, American history.
5: Thank you, you you, Congressman Conco, for those words of inspiration. Um, we really appreciate it, and you're right, there's more work to be done, and we've had great inspiration, even you know, with um, people right here in our county. Uh, at this time, I'm going to um, turn the floor over to, oh, there she is, Shawna Davis, Shawna, uh, she's with the uh, Coalition of Black Unionists, and we'll ha- have a few words from her.
6: Good evening. Good evening. Right. I want to thank you all for coming out in the snow because when I looked at the snow, I wanted to stay home. <laughs> but Brother Jay Ford, Pastor Jay Ford won't let us do that. Um, but I want to say thank you all for coming out today. I want to thank the NAACP and Team Hero for allowing CBTU to join with them to have a Black History Month event. It is so important that we continue to educate not only our children but ourselves on the importance of our history. It is ever learning and we don't ever know everything, right? And so it's amazing these posters on the wall just going around looking at things and even in the many years that I am old, I'm still learning something new. Um, I want to say a special thank you to the young men sitting over here on my left hand side. Thank you for being here. You could be anywhere tonight. You could be on a basketball court. You could be at home playing your PlayStation. Is it still called PlayStation? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You could be at some girl's house, right? Or you can be in some places that aren't good for you. But I want to thank you for being here tonight, not only for you to get some education. but also that you educate us. Don't ever think that we don't learn from you. Don't ever think that you're not giving something. Your voice is so extremely important. I want you to know that we are listening. We might not respond as quickly as you would like us to, but please know that we hear you and we love you and thank you for being here. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much, Shauna, for that. At this time, I'd like to um, call on—really, this is KP Hall from the Sanctuary of Media, Independent Media, and um, I would like to have a few words from her. Thank you.
8: Thank you all so much for coming, um, for being here, for allowing us to host this important event. Here the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words, and there are so many wonderful images here for us to learn from this evening. Um, I have been the Executive Director of the Sanctuary for just a little bit over a month, um, and this is my first opportunity to host an event here, and I couldn't think of a better way uh, to kick this off. I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. The Sanctuary for Independent Media resides on the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people who are indigenous uh, indigenous peoples of the lands of New York. Despite tremendous hardships and being forced from their lands, today their community resides in Wisconsin and is known as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. We honor this community past and present and are committed to building a more inclusive and equitable space for all. In that spirit, Um, I hope that those of you who are coming back to the sanctuary after um, a bit of a hiatus, um, you know, some of the events took a bit of a lull during the pandemic. Um, And so for some of you who haven't been here for a while, welcome back. Um, So happy that you're here. And I did hear that there were a few folks who this was their first time here. So thank you so much. We're experiencing a first together. um, And that is such an honor for me. Um, So please come back often, check in with us, uh, listen to our radio programming, and check out our website, uh, mediasanctuary.org, for a whole host of events throughout the season. Um, So thank you so much to all of you for being here this evening, and I want to echo that you could have been anywhere, um, and I personally am, am honored and humbled to have such a great crowd here tonight, so thank you.
2: So we finished up with uh, K.P. Holler, new executive director of the Media Sanctuary. and was Willie Terry's report on Black History Month celebration at the sanctuary. And we started off with Renee Powell of the Troy ACP, uh, Congressman Paul Tonko and uh, Shana Davis, who's with the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists.
1: Next, Bria Barthel talks with Elisheva Lieberman about the musical comedy Who Let the Jews Out? Drama Mamas tell the Exodus story in a new play at the Albany Jewish Community Center on March 12th at 2 p.m.
9: Have you ever asked yourself the question, who let the Jews out? Well, Sheva Lieberman is here to tell us the answer to this. Sheva, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hi, it's great to be here. And The title, Who Let the Jews Out? That's a little provocative, and it's for a play that's coming up? Yes, it's actually a comedy musical.
10: It's definitely a musical with a lot of singing and dancing and a lot of fun. And it's telling the age-old story of the exodus from Egypt. And it's a little different. This production is by women for women, you said? Yes, it's a great production. It involves about 25 women of all different ages, from about the age of 14 to, I think our oldest actresses are in their 70s. And I really find it's a great way to celebrate the talents of individual women. A lot of people, a lot of women especially, are involved in their careers, in their jobs, in their everyday lives, and they don't get to do those talents that they've had their whole lives and and enjoy celebrating. We like to celebrate that. For example, we have someone who's a biochemist who also plays the trumpet. Or we have a person who's a retired doctor, and she plays Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in this wonderfully comedic way. So we like to celebrate those talents that are hidden inside all of us.
9: So it's community theater, but it's also sort of a pop-up theater production, right?
10: Yeah, it is. To be honest, it's community theater in the truest sense of the word. It's community theater by taking people from a community, from people who are actually part of the the space that they live in and performing for other people within that community and performing a story that's central to us, a story that everybody knows but retold in a totally different
9: way. So when I think of the exodus, I think of the parting of the Red Sea. How do you pull that off in a stage production? Oh, that's a big surprise. You know,
10: we actually have um, one of the women who is involved in the the production is a tremendously talented artist. And another is a tremendously talented set designer who's also a nurse. And both of them, in their free time, constructed a wonderful sea that we're going to part with the help of a a few talented uh, stagehands from the junior high.
9: So you really are doing the parting of the Red Sea. Oh, we
10: sure are. We sure are. We have a little bit of everything in this production. Everything from showing the the slavery of the the Jews in Egypt, the central story of the of the way that things were in Egypt, and then from the parting of the Red Sea and to the wandering in the desert and everything in between.
9: And I understand that you're both the director and the writer for
10: this? Yeah, I always love to write as long as I can remember, to be honest. But, you know, there aren't that many necessarily careers just to go out and be a writer. So I ended up doing what a lot of people do. I went to school and I and I have a regular business and I do other things, but I always love to write. And what ended up happening was when I lived in Israel about 12 years ago, a few of my friends decided you know, we should do like a little skit. You know, wouldn't it be fun the way we used to do in elementary school? You know, because when you're in elementary school or high school, there's production. But then all of a sudden, when you're an adult, that whole thing stops. And sometimes your creativity stops. And I said, you know what? I'll write it. You know, I'll write it. I'm a good writer. I could write something out. And we envisioned maybe 10 people coming. And we were in the Audit, we were. We didn't even get an auditorium. We were in the hallway of an elementary school. and I thought we were going to get maybe 10 or 12 of our friends. And we had like 75 people show up. We thought, wow, you know, we're really on to something here. And they laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And so the next year, I couldn't keep people out. Like we were packed. We were packed with women who wanted to be in it. And we were
9: packed with women who wanted to see it. Before we started recording, you said that in Israel, there's a strong um, tradition of theater by women for women. So this is primarily for women.
10: Yes, there is a tradition of this. It stems from a religious tradition of women performing for women, but it's gone throughout Jewish, Jewish history like that. And what it ends up is people are able to, in a proverbial way, let their hair down to be themselves, to be someone else, to, to, to step into a role that they wouldn't feel comfortable in a different space. And just totally step into a character or totally step into a talent they didn't even think about the fact that they had. I, I always say, I think one of my primary qualifications for women to be in the show is that they say, I haven't been on a stage in 20 years and the last time I was on, everyone told me I, maybe I shouldn't be on because I didn't have a good voice or I wasn't the best looking or I wasn't, I wasn't this. And in my show, anybody basically who wants a part and will commit to coming to rehearsals gets a part.
9: In the 70s, there was a big move for um, women's space, for women-only space, as a way to bond together and to avoid some of the ugliness going on in society. And yet, in this time of gender fluidity and transgender, to say women-only sounds a bit exclusive and has a different sense to it. Can you say something about that? Well,
10: our show is Anything But Exclusive. Our show has such a broad uh, spectrum of people who are involved in it. And I've never turned anyone away from a show, and I've never turned anyone away from being in the show because it's really meant to be more about including everyone than it is about excluding anyone.
9: So letting everybody have a voice and letting uh, everybody hear the voices, even though you, you advertise it for women, by women, you still are not turning away trans people or gender fluid or men?
10: I've never turned anyone away, but I've never had a man try to buy a ticket either.
9: (laughs) Now, is this just one performance of this show?
10: This time we're doing one
9: performance, one day only.
10: We're actually, the Jewish calendar is sort of packed this year and Jewish women get very, very busy between the holidays of Purim and Passover. And this show falls right in the middle. So we're doing exactly one show, but it's going to be a doozy of a show. It's going to be a great show.
9: And that's on March 12th at the Albany Jewish Community Center.
10: That's correct. Real community theater from being performed by the community for the community in the community center. (laughs)
9: Continuing with that, it's sponsored by Shalom Food Pantry. Can you say something about them, please?
10: Yeah, Shalom Food Pantry is just a wonderful organization. We are totally volunteer-driven. Our um, The Drama Mamas, our theater troupe, is totally volunteer-driven. There's nobody that gets paid from the producer to the people that are—, are we have a wonderful choreographer this year, and um, nobody gets paid— And so what does all the the money go to other than the cost of actual production? Well, some of it goes to creating that set for the parting of the Red Sea. That's true, but you would be surprised what a bunch of uh, cardboard boxes and talented hands can can do, you know. But what it goes to is it goes to the Shalom Food Pantry. Um, This is an organization that distributes food to needy families, um, primarily uh, Jewish families, but there's also non-Jewish families involved. And they give them whatever sorts of healthy food packages for the Jewish holiday of Passover especially. It's a very expensive holiday to make. You know, there's a lot of of food involved. As as many people know, as many cultures do, Jews connect through food. And there's always a lot of people who just can't, can't afford it. And so this money will all go to this wonderful Shalom Food Pantry, which will distribute these packages to needy families.
9: And then the information, if people want to know about the show, is at shalomfoodpantry.org. That's S-H-A-L-O-M Food Pantry, all one word. Dot .org. Now you mentioned the name of the group, but I don't think I had said it earlier. The Drama Mamas. How did you come up with that name?
10: We wanted a name that kind of expressed who we are. We don't take ourselves very seriously. We take the production very seriously because we want to produce something that's good and worth watching.
9: So I'm envisioning that you have some Andean pack animals join the troupe at some point and become the drama mamas and llamas. (laughs) Do you expect to do other productions with this group or with some variation in this group? Yes,
10: uh, we hope to do a yearly production. I'm already hard at work uh, writing next year's production. We did a great production last year called Shushan Nights which was the story of uh, the Purim story, Queen Esther, like a real uh, princess and king and intrigue and royal type story. But the idea between what really connects all of them is, first of all, a sense of Jewish history that can be a universal history in a way, because not only is like, for example, the story of the Exodus connected to many, many cultures, It's also this universal idea of freedom, of coming out of bondage, of reclaiming your sense of of self, and reclaiming your personal freedom.
9: Thanks. And that's Sheva Lieberman talking about the upcoming production of Who Let the Jews Out on March 12th at Albany Jewish Community Center. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
2: Well, I had to say Bria, you know, did all my closing statements. So Drama Mamas, Who Let the Jews Out? Uh, Albany Jewish Community Center, March 12th at 2 p.m.
1: Eunice Young talks to Emily, a student at RPI, about her experience of having Lyme disease and her difficulty in finding answers. My
11: name's Emily Bergmeier. I'm 21 years old, I go to RPI. And I'm in my senior year of college, my last semester. I'm really just going to highlight my story in the past four years. The COVID-19 pandemic started when I was a freshman in college. And then in the summer of 2020, I was bitten by multiple ticks at my home um, on Long Island, where there's a lot of Lyme-borne, um, Lyme-carrying ticks due to a large deer population. And so, you know, I went to the doctor, my blood work kept showing that I had Rocky Mountain spotted fever. I received like, three rounds of antibiotics and it, my blood work just kept showing Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which if left untreated can cause organ failure. And so I was, you know, kind of sitting here trying to go through, getting through, you know, college while navigating the, the pandemic, and also just knowing that something was not right in my body. Um, It started out in my knees in November of 2020. There was just such, it was such horrible pain. And I was like, this is not, I shouldn't be crying, trying to bend down to pick something up, like this, a pain i had never felt before and just constant popping of joints. So I ended up going to see a specialist, um, a blood specialist, you know, try to figure out what this blood work has been telling me and why antibiotics haven't been working and what's going on with my body. And so, you know, I, I went to see a specialist down on Long, Long Island and I mean, I, I look healthy. I was 19 at the time and I was told, there's nothing wrong with you. Why are you here? I had to, you know, push to even get blood work done so I could understand what was going on with me. And even then I was being told like, oh, no, 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 this happens all the time. You don't actually have Rocky Mountain spotted fever. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just the test is an outdated sort of blood test and um, you'll be fine. I get a call a couple months later. Turns out everything is not fine. There are some proteins in my blood that indicate that there is some sort of immune disease going on and I should go and see another doctor. So, you know, I'm in the middle of my college career. Uh, Doctor waits are pretty long. So waiting, waiting, and waiting to finally see a specialist. Um, All my family has had Lyme disease just because of the proximity of being on Long Island. So I ended up being able to get an appointment with a Lyme specialist for July. Now, mind you, I I had started looking into doctors in order to figure out what was going on in January. So it kind of faded from the back of my mind. Symptoms just became, you know, part of the every experience. Um, and then once end of spring started, you know, my all my joints started popping whenever I would like move. It was, it's I sounded like um, Rice Krispies, but my joints. So I was like, hmm, that's that's a little odd. Um, and then it ended up when I received my COVID vaccine, I ended up. Covered in the bullseye rashes of that signify Lyme disease, and I couldn't walk. I was very sick. I could, and I was also taking a full semester's worth of class at RPI through their arch program. So I had no idea what was going on. All I knew is, okay, I have this appointment with a specialist in July. Hopefully, they can figure out what is going on. Um, and I started being symptomatic <laughs> middle of June. So it ended up being Lyme disease with a bunch of different co-infections that. Ticks also carry. And so here I was, you know, 19 years old, summer before my junior year, taking courses and bedridden for three months. And it it was pretty terrible. Um, I've gone through three rounds of pretty intensive antibiotics along with various supplements and different forms of treatment in order to, you know, keep the Lyme disease at bay. I think it worked. I mean, I, I can walk, um, I can like bend down and pick stuff up, um, which is great. But the problem is, is I don't know if I am Lyme free. I don't know if it's going to come back, if it's chronic. And I, I've been having heart issues recently, um, which may be due to the Lyme disease. So this has been something that's when the question is about my medical history, especially if I'm going to the doctors or just trying to explain to someone, it's always turns into this long-winded story because I, I mean, I wish it was just as simple as "Oh, I got sick for a bit," but a bit has been <laughs> nearly three years, and I didn't expect college to <laughs> to be interrupted or or occurring alongside this this illness.
1: You also mentioned how you were having symptoms like way before your appointment in July. So can you talk about how you got like
11: connected to the physicians and how you were approached by them? I'm really blessed to have um, a very supportive family. Um, And so my mother was really instrumental in helping me to find the specialist. We spent just hours searching online, making phone calls seeing and you know we have we have pretty good insurance which is is great um but even so none of those visits were covered by insurance um so most of the lyme specialists if they were accepting weren't outside of insurance and it was independent research um that we did on our own just kind of going down the rabbit hole of websites and it took, it took a lot of phone calls of either being told that certain specialists were all filled up or they actually didn't specialize in Lyme disease slash other immunocompromised illnesses. So once we finally found one, the, the wait to, to actually get a consultation and an intake appointment was months as you have struggled while
1: researching who to reach out to, to make appointments, have you thought about any ways that you would have preferred to go through rather than just doing research with like zero
11: background knowledge? Yeah. I really wish that there was just some sort of, for for Lyme disease at least, or just any sort of illness that isn't, easily treatable that's that's more on the, the fringes of, of what current treatment looks like. Um, I really wish there was some sort of like through my insurance company or even the doctor who did my blood work. If I had been told, like, here, here's a list of some people you can call because it it was just like we were flying blind. Basically, it was trial and error. Who Who is the closest distance wise? Um, it ended up being like a 40 30 minute drive from my house, the, the specialist who diagnosed me. Um, and because at that point, I didn't know it was Lyme disease. I just basically had gotten a call saying these protein receptors are in your blood, your blood work. It's probably going to take a while for you to get an appointment at any sort of specialist. So hang in there. Um, maybe you have arthritis, maybe it's something else we don't really know. Good luck." Um, So I would have much rather being able to go in for a follow-up appointment, address my concerns, and get recommendations for where to go. I would have just made my life and the life of my loved ones so much easier.
1: Um, Before we finish our interview, would you like to share any last comments for people empathizing and listening to you today?
11: Yeah. I think with Lyme disease, it's it's very difficult. It's it's a disease that not a lot of people really know about, and especially you. Know, you look healthy for the most part. Like I looked, if I walked into a room while experiencing symptoms. The the pain that I felt within my body was not always reflected, so it became very difficult. Um, just trying to even get support from physicians and trying to navigate being a a young person who has an illness and has to keep reminding um professors and friends and my peers that no i I can't actually you know go for a walk with you um my body's not gonna my body's not gonna make it i need to be gentle with it and just kind of reminding that it's very difficult for people to explain what they've been through medically, especially when it has to do with physical pain, um, and it changes it changes you as a person and how you interact with the world. So, just being patient with loved ones who are suffering from various diseases um, and being, being there for people when they're in an uncertain spot, especially regarding their health, it's very important to I feel like you're supportive and that somebody is is listening and trying to help guide you towards answers thank you for telling us about your experience today emily
2: so that of course is a very sad story from, from emily but unfortunately i i know half a dozen neighbors and close friends who had very very similar stories with lyme disease and so something that uh, everybody needs to take uh, seriously uh, actually, right when COVID uh, forced a shutdown, uh, I ended up with a tick disease that basically, uh, for three weeks, couldn't figure out what was going on, but it was uh, anaplasmosis. And literally within five minutes, he had to take in medication. Uh, it, it went away. Uh, so.
1: And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Lavender.
2: I'm Mark Dunley, our engineer is Sina Basile-Hickey. Let's thank all our volunteers for tonight's work. Bria Barthel, Willard Terry, uh, Eunice Young, and uh, myself doing headlines.
1: Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. Thank you.